This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. Hi, I'm Sarah Kuntz from Clio Capital. And what I love about innovation is that the world is always changing and we get to watch it happen. From New York City, you're listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. So happy you are here. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I'm Mark Rako, one of the hosts. Uh, with me as per usual, or I'm with him, is Mr. Pubbin Ball. Hey, Pubbin, how are you? Hey, what's happening, brother? Good. How are things going over at uh, Bellwether Culture? How, yeah, your... things are good. Listen, I'm excited to talk to Sarah today because oh, she has a portfolio company that I have been beta testing, by the way, in the event space. So, fantastic digital event space. Well, then this is very, very lucky we've got her on the show. Topical. And uh, by the way, we've uh, we've uh, have uh, Sarah Kunst on the show, who we will meet in just a moment. Thanks to our uh, special guest host returning to the show. Thank goodness he is back with us because he's always a, a great addition, Mr. Simeon Siegel. Simeon, welcome back. Good to see you, my man. What's up, guys? And thanks for bringing thanks for bringing your new beard with you. You know what? The new beard, the old beard. <laughs> we we go with COVID. We take it where it takes us. Measuring that's right. Is, do they do they still allow you on TV with that? Well, you know, like some people like scratch their lines in the jail cells. I just keep growing hairs. <laughs> I got to keep track of time somehow. Is that what it is? Okay, great. So uh, anyway, uh, also, uh, obviously, welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you very much for joining us. It's really wonderful to meet you. You're such an accomplished person, and it's it's a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you. I'd like to lead off the questioning, kind of go in a direction I don't normally start a show out in, and and and, and I kind of against the rules of improv a little bit, because when you do improv or improv comedy, one thing you don't do is you don't hand someone something they have to then figure out. You got to lead them and then let them follow, and then they say yes to it. I'm going to go against that rule and just ask you this question. What is on your mind right now? What is on your mind these days that's been driving most of your actions and decision-making lately, aside from the very obvious word pandemic? Yes. Um, I too was in improv in high school, but then I quit because I found that I wasn't exactly a theater kid, but I was good at it. You know, I think the thing that's on my mind is really thinking about sort of what stays and what goes both in kind of a, I, I just moved. And so in a literal sense, dealing with that and all the logistics, but but also in a more kind of broad sense globally in, in terms of, hey, we, we start to have a vaccine. It feels like we're turning a corner. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the news lately about, hey, if you, re, if you relocate for work, uh, your boss is going to cut your pay, which is going to cause people to ask the interesting question of, wait, do I actually want to relocate if if I can't be the richest man in a Cincinnati suburb, right? We've, we've spent kind of a year without a lot of uh, people around us. And then now you start to think about all the people that you're kind of glad you haven't seen in a year, right? And and who do you bring back and, and who do you leave out? And and I think that, you know, for, for better or for worse, uh, this has been a bit of a tornado taking apart lots of things in its path. And and as anybody who's ever lived in a natural through a natural disaster knows, you know, it, it destroys your house and then you get the insurance check and you have two options, right? You can rebuild exactly where you were before, or you can go and do something completely different. And, and so I think that this 
next kind of year is is going to be a really interesting look into you know what what stays and what goes. You know, to, uh, before we get too deep into the conversation, I do want to take a step back and and have you uh, the opportunity to introduce yourself and um, kind of give a little context to what your path has been in terms of participating specifically for our audience who's most interested in uh, fashion or retail technology or innovation. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I worked at Apple, Chanel and Red Bull early in my career and then uh, worked for, for some fashion startups and then have been an investor and founder uh, since 2009. And so uh, primarily on the investing side, you know, started and ran a, a startup in the uh, fitness space, uh, which I know that fitness and lifestyle is augmented or replaced a lot of a lot of consumer spending dollars that used to go to yet another pair of high heels. Um, I personally find room in my budget for both. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I think that that's in a lot of ways sort of the new kind of consumerism. So, you know, this is a space that I've always been in. Well, always, always meaning my entire kind of career, you know, have, have always spent some time looking at, and now I invest in a lot of things, some of which touch on, on retail innovation, although not sort of explicitly uh, kind of discretionary consumer, meaning that, you know, my, my only real kind of big discretionary consumer investment in the moment is Hill House, uh, which is Nell Diamond's company famed for their COVID era nap dresses, which I am, of course, wearing right now. Um and uh, yeah, oh my! By the way, I, I know Simeon, you look amazing in it. Um, and and I also uh, am a contributing editor at Marie Claire Magazine, where I primarily lean in on on business and, and tech. But certainly, that keeps me abreast of stuff as well. And and I think that's the cool part: being in fashion or being in, in retail doesn't mean you only look at those things, but you don't have to be deeply siloed. And and you know, Simeon on, on one end does that. He's my go-to guy that I call for any consumer question even if it's not retail related. Um, and, and I think on the investing side, I do that as well. Well, so what I was about to say, I think Sarah is also underselling herself a little bit. She's been investing in all of these, but beyond that, she's also an advisor to a lot of companies at very large scale. So people come, I have yet to find a consumer topic that I can't have with Sarah and learn something each time. So this conversation is going to be fascinating across many uh, categories. So the gauntlet's thrown, Sarah. We expect an answer to everything that comes so I, across. I have answers to everything. <laughs> you can ask my mom. <laughs> so let's take it that way. There, this has been a year. Uh, it's been a decade of a year. And I guess, where's your attention in terms of identifying or uh, the pulse of the consumer shift? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's irresponsible to talk about where the consumer is at right now without acknowledging just the absolutely massive bifurcation um, that has happened. Uh, they're really, you know, America hasn't had a real middle class in a long time, but we've been able to ignore that because there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of debt available to Americans. Uh, it is our real national currency, and and this year has sort of pulled the rug out from under that, and and so I think. You know, on one end, you have consumers who are feeling richer than ever because, uh, you know, when when the stock market's going gangbusters, Bitcoin is on a wild tear, um, the IPO market's red hot, uh, quantitative easing, you know, is, is giving you obscenely low interest rates, but you can't really travel, you can't really, you know, it doesn't really make sense to buy endless, you know, whatevers because you're not going anywhere, you're not really seeing anyone, you end up feeling rich. 
So you have that on one side. And then in my industry, the tech industry, you have every every everybody who's about to get a big capital gains windfall is moving to a state with no state income tax like Florida or Texas, which adds another 10% on top of, you know, there are already hundreds of millions or billions. That's a lot of money. And then on the other hand, you have record high unemployment levels. You know, you have people casually, I was at a grocery store the other day and, you know, a customer and the checkout guy were casually commiserating over the fact that they just couldn't pay rent. Not in like a, oh my God, feel sorry for me way. It's just for, for, you know, millions and millions and millions of people right now in the country, the reality is like, of course I can't pay rent. How, how can I pay rent? I've gotten $1,200 for the government and I haven't had a job, you know, in over six months. How would I pay rent? And, and so I think that that bifurcation is certainly trickled down to the consumer. Yeah, look, it, it, it's never been so apparent, right? The inequities in the upper and, and lower ca- uh, income levels. And, uh, you know, to, to your point, the middle class hasn't been there for a very long time in America, and but now it's just glaring. And when you talk about low interest rates, it's it's great for folks that could actually qualify for them, right, to, to get that ability, but... So I think, first of all, anyone who starts by calling Pavan irresponsible has won the podcast. So, so congrats there. That's, yeah. that's a good start. Um, but so, Tara, so as, as, a, as the investor, so what do you advise your companies? So as you think about this, I mean, there's this element of the consumer and the bifurcation, and we have to, to recognize the people that are spending, and hopefully they are able to, from the side of the corporation, how do you approach that? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's the hard thing, right? I think if you're a huge corporation, the obvious thing to do, you know, is when you get your next round of PPP checks, don't buy a Lamborghini, keep people employed. Um, it's not super hard. Uh, but, you know, oh, I know. Oh. No, I, I have a I, I have a friend in tech. Who, fun, fun, fun sponge in the room. Exactly. I had no idea. Exactly. Well, I have a friend in tech who was saying that, you know, he he's just really rich and he wanted to buy a Lamborghini. And uh, you know, because he's not living in the city right now. And his friend who owns a dealership said, you know, that that they feel for, for whether or not this is true and 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 uh, Simeon would be a much better probably person to judge if this is true. But they feel that that PPEs had a direct impact on the demand for Lamborghinis because a lot of people are going in and say, hey, I feel like I have some extra money right now. This is how I'm going to use it. So that is more of a government issue in terms of, of how do you, you know, promote responsible bailouts. And it's probably bottom up, not top down because I am not a Reaganomics accolade, but you know, it's one of those things where I think if you're a company, it's, it's thinking a lot about where your consumer is. Um, if you can lean in on the other end to, to the higher end of consumer, you know, then, then do, do that. Um, especially if you're a small business, if you've been trying to target kind of a middle-class consumer who's not there right now, and you'd have a product that's, that's a reach product for, for a consumer who's struggling financially right now, then lean into, to the consumer who does have money because, you know, if, if your business thrives and you can keep hiring more people and, and, and that's good. And then I think, you know, on the other end of it, thinking really carefully about how you can be a responsible business, you know, how you can, you know, do things to the extent that, that, that it's possible uh, to help, you know, the people who are really struggling right now. And, and so I, I think that, you know, the reality is uh, there's a meme that I love that's like, you know, a picture of the apocalypse in the background and an old guy's telling a little kid, but for one brief moment, we returned a lot of value to our shareholders, right? Um, and I think the reality is that if there are no people who can afford to buy things, then you as a business will not stay in business long, no matter how attractive your tax cuts are. And and so understanding that 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 
part of the ecosystem, putting aside the morality of it, like you, you need customers. And the reality is the super rich are terrible customers because, you know, you don't buy a proportionate number of beds or shoes to your net worth once your net worth is over probably like a couple million bucks. Well, and I think if we go back to some of the episodes we had done previously and we take stock of how our estimate of what COVID would look like actually played out, I think part of the problem, Sarah, is that a lot of retail is actually doing really well, mm-hmm. right? So this is not a 2008 type of recession. Like the reality is from a company level, people are getting, people aren't seeing this horrible environment. And I yeah, think but, that but to, to Sarah's point, right? Like to, to go back and say they're feeling rich. We all feeling rich, right? But that's not the case. When, when life returns to a resemblance of reality that, um, you know, and, and those priorities start shifting to out of the house and commuting and, you know, having all of those expenditures that come along with living outside of, you know, for me, this two bedroom box in Brooklyn, it's, it's totally different. Like you, you think the wealth effect will go away? I mean, so I'm talking to you totally candid. I live in a bubble of a bubble of a bubble. I live in Silicon Valley where, you know, my friends, I worry that they're not going to be rich when their net worth dips below a hundred million. So, so I'm not talking about, and I'm from, to, to the extent that it matters, I am from like a very, very much real America, right? A 300 person farm town in Michigan and, and, uh, grew up in a, in a three bedroom house with one bathroom and, and, you know, a very hardworking dad and a mom who stayed at home to, to chase after us. So I, I am not, not cognizant of what is going on in the lives of my family members who are bricklayers. And, and linemen and, and truck drivers. Um, but, you know, when I talk about the wealth effect, you know, I'm talking about for, for the people who are seeing, you know, for the Elon Musk of the world, right? Um, I, I was at a party with Elon Musk a couple of years ago. And at the time, he was worth a fraction of what he's worth now. And, and, and all those tides that have, have risen with that, those people are feeling richer than ever. And, and I agree, there's sort of an upper middle class, professional class, let's call it, who I think is also feeling richer, but is aware that that is not going to last forever. And, and that would actually be, I don't have insight into this, it'd be really interesting to know what the saving trends are, right? If you're a lawyer, if you're a podcast host, if you're somebody who's, who's you know, certainly doing well, but you know that you know your fifty dollars a day in round trip Ubers are going to come back next year. How how are you thinking about saving versus spending? So, to the Elon point, which is really interesting, and I only say this a little bit in jest, the comment that he had a fraction of his wealth. We could probably say that every single day, right? Every single day. Yesterday, he only had a fraction of his wealth because of how the market keeps working. So, when you think of your friends, when you think of the companies. How are people approaching these paper gains? How are people approaching what stocks now have taken meaningfully higher valuations, even though that reality we keep talking about is still somewhat up in the air? You know, I, I think it depends, right, on what you're what you're looking for. If you run a venture fund or something and you're actually going to get distributions, um, if you run a hedge fund and you actually want to lock in those gains, um, then I, I think that you are... are cautiously optimistic that you can ride out your six-month lockup or whatever and then start to get out. And we've seen from past IPOs that there's just a really kind of robust planning ecosystem now around how do you let people out of their lockup without tanking the stock price? Um, Because everybody sort of, it's like yelling fire in a crowded room and everybody, you know, kind of crowds the exits and and tramples on each other. So so there's that piece of it. But I think for a lot of people, there is a, a point where they are far past the diminishing returns and and the single probably most powerful Elon Musk 
thing that Elon Musk can do to maintain his wealth is to not lock in his gains with Tesla because he can borrow against that money all day long. And and I can't truly, unless he wants to get back into the emerald mining business, which was my shout out to his family's apartheid past, um, because we are really dropping bombs before Christmas. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, unless he wants to get back into emerald mining, I don't know what he needs to borrow against, right? He famously sold his houses. One of my friends runs the storage facilities that's storing all of his stuff right now. No word on where he put his six kids. But, you know, it's one of those things where, like, he doesn't actually need any money. And and Mm. him holding Tesla gives him, you know, uh, gives people a lot of faith that if it's good enough for him to hold, then they must want to buy it too. And then buying it pushes the stock price higher, right? So to that extent, you kind of become a market maker. I would argue that the Winklevoss twins, who are good friends of mine, are, are doing something similar in the crypto world, where by the fact that they are... They are they are holders, right? And and very famously, so that helps uh, increase the value because you look at them and you think, well, they could go buy a yacht, and instead they're choosing to hold. So what do they know that I don't know? I better invest. Sarah, uh, just for those that didn't hear you, um, what was the address again of that storage facility? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> that I can't say. We'll edit that out. <laughs> No, this it is fascinating. I mean, look, uh, uh, one of the portfolio companies I saw prominently mm-hmm. displayed on your uh, your website is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to now, I know that it doesn't necessarily directly tie to yeah. retail, but in a lot of facets, digital uh, events tied to every industry right now. And the, the boom against it has been insane. And it's really particularly interesting considering uh, besides Eventbrite, there really hasn't been any venture backed, you know, event tech companies before the last, let's say, eight months or nine months. Um, can you talk a little bit through like um, kind of the industry priority on digital events and where you think that's going to go and how this industry uh, should be thinking about connecting to their consumer? Yeah. So, so mm-hmm is a really cool company. Uh, it, it is sort of gives everybody the, the weekend update style powers of presentation uh, for Zoom. So you should definitely check it out. And, and it's a company we're super excited to be investors in. Digital events have exploded and, and, you know, there was that time sort of in, in COVID season one, as I like to call it, kind of, you know, April, May, where we were all sitting on, on Zoom happy hours with our friends every second. And then we we're all like, this sucks. I hate this. Like, I don't want to do, I'd rather just drink alone or maybe that's just me. So, um, you know, I think there is a thought of, of this isn't quite working, but there have been some really bright spots. Um, I'll call out my, my former employer, Chanel, um, you know, their beauty atelier, uh, which was a, a really special space in Soho that was like second floor, you know, street level, uh, not street level retail in, in Soho is sort of an experimental space really, really cool. Uh, Pre-COVID, you know, it's still there, but but obviously people aren't really going in in the same way. They've shifted to digital experiences and it's really, really cool. Um, you know, they'll, you can, you can book events with your friends or one-on-one and you get like these amazing consultations and they send you the kits and that's all this amazing stuff. And they like teach you how to make, you know, how to do your makeup. And it's, it's a thousand times better experience than sitting at a beauty counter, even in some of their, you know, amazing retail spaces in, inside of either their stores or, or department stores. Because you just get to like relax at home and you have all your stuff and like you're you're not wearing makeup and that's and you're putting it on and it feels a lot more natural to do that there than at a you know inside of a retail environment. And and it's really, really shown, right? And and do they get 
the same level of, of sell-through on it. I'm not sure, right? I think it's still new and that's hard. But I, I do think that there is a lot of innovation happening where people are able to, one, connect everywhere. Because before you had to be in Soho at a certain prescribed hour to be able to see the experience. Now you can do it anywhere. And two, you know, it brings the brand to you in a different way. And so I think there are bright spots. And, and when I talk about kind of what goes and what stays, I think a lot of those things will will stay. I, I think a lot of yeah. those things make sense to keep even when we can go back into retail store. Here is a sobering statistic. 60% of companies are without long-term internal communication strategies. Do you have one? An effective one? Here's another sobering statistic. Companies with communication strategies that work well result in returns to shareholders that are 47% higher versus companies and organizations with poorer communication. 47%. Here's what does work. A communication method that successfully appeals to younger generations while also being adopted by older generations. It's the podcast. And as a result, more and more companies are making use of internally deployed audio content, which closely resembles podcast episodes. If you're a company with at least 50 employees, or you have a large number of strategic partners or retailers you need to regularly communicate with for training, updates, compliance, instructions, and more, we should talk. Please reach out to us at podcasts at mouthmedianetwork.com. That's podcasts at mouthmedianetwork.com. Last week, I just uh, we had a ten-part series on strategy as it relates to digital events, and one of them it was in conversation with Tim Ringle, who's the uh, the global CEO of Spring Studios, and um, you know we were talking about, and I was laying in my, I guess my thoughts on how shopping in general, like retailers will all have to, we are already seeing a shift that people want to own their creativity. So content studios being in-house at a lot of larger brands and then smaller brands just being nimble and really great on executing with, with uh, what they have, maybe even a green screen. Uh, but now to take it fo- forward a little bit, what we've done now is really that paradigm shift of um, just having Zoom be like a ubiquitous technology for all Americans in all of the world, right? Or similar, when I say Zoom, I mean similar platformed experiences, whether it's Microsoft Teams or XYZ. And I do expect that when retail comes back, of course, we're already moving into experiential, but how does experiential meet that digital extension, right? So to your point, yes, like I think that makeup tutorials will not only be more efficacious uh, through a digital means or a hybrid of those means, uh, same thing with podcasting, but also the sell-through on these things are insane. Uh, We had Amanda Patterson on the, the show not terribly long ago from The Call List, which is basically like a live stream shopping platform. So when you can actually sell through product to the direct to consumer side, uh, China has seen $60 billion in sales through live stream shopping in 2019. If that's any indicator, like a lot of the other ways that we interact today on chat, uh, how China has been just ahead of us or how London, you know, had tight pants and, you know, now we're 
<laughs> and now we went through that phase and now we're going back out to baggy. You know, these indicators are real, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm excited to your point to that same use case of the private atelier or even the ground floor that carves out now space to amplify because their economics around square footage and occupancy rates are just obliterated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I think that's I think that's certainly true. Um, you know, I, there have been a bunch of venture activity in the video shopping space. Pop Shop, uh, you know, mm-hmm. famously their Series A was closed uh, on a friend of mine's private jet um, because that is what we are doing to win allocations apparently to Series A companies, which means I need to hurry up and get private jet rich. Apparently, well, uh, uh, Sarah, t- I want to make a point here real quick, or just ask you: Are you in a complete alien to your family now? No, I mean, the, the reality <laughs> is, so one, my parents are the, the flavor of Midwestern that no matter what I do, they only have one response, which is, that's nice. Honey. I love you. That's nice, honey. Yeah. Like, mom, yeah. this crazy thing. That's nice, honey. Mom, I'm at, like, I'm in a huge magazine. Well, you know, your your niece, uh, she uh, she started kindergarten. And I'm like, I love Mika, but these are not the same thing, mom. So, But yeah. Sarah, have you told her about this podcast yet? Exactly. That's nice, honey. <laughs> no, but you know what my mom used to do? She used to get alerts <laughs> every tweet that I sent to her phone. One, her phone must have been blowing up. Two, oh. the shit she must have seen was wild. But yes, uh, I don't think she does that anymore. Um. But but no, I mean, that's the thing, though, is it takes a certain level of ability to withstand cognitive dissonance, I think, to understand that that the world is a vast and multifaceted place and that the same time I'm like, you know, going out of my way to like order cookies from like, you know, a small family baking them in in a not particularly nice of town part of town where I'm living right now, because, you know, they probably need that 30 bucks more than the whole foods mm-hmm. for my Christmas cookies. Uh, you know, I also understand that I'm, I'm taking those Christmas cookies to a friend's house who sold their company for a billion dollars. And that's reality, right? I mean, that's not everybody's reality. That's my reality. But, but whether or not you're bridging both of those worlds, both of those worlds exist. And I think that having the kind of fortitude to, to stand in that gap and say like there, and I'm, I'm squarely in the middle of both of those. I run a very small fund, which means if you know anything about uh, uh, finance economics, I'm, I am closer to poor than I am to rich right now. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, I think it's easy to, to barbell on one side or the other and not want to see the other because it makes you uncomfortable. It makes the world feel messy, but the reality is the world is messy and uncomfortable and understanding how we, you know, certainly lower the floor uh, for for our friends who who are struggling, and by friends I mean in the global sense, not people we're personally friends with only. Um, and and you know maybe maybe lower the ceiling as well, and and actually I don't know, God forbid, have real taxes for people who are billionaires. But there's always going to be that spectrum on some level. And so accepting it, understanding it and saying, this is reality. How do we work within it? Right. Even for me, my investing thesis, one of my big ones is future of income, which recognizes the fact that, you know, six over 60 percent of income in the U.S. is non W2 and that's only growing. So we're in this situation where on one end we have capital gains, we have crypto, we have, you know, the money, all of this crazy money that people are making on the very, very, very rich side of things. And on the other side, you have, you know, 
the 1099 economy. Some people call it the passion economy, things like podcasting. We at Clio Capital generally believe that most Americans are passionate about putting food on their table and paying their rent, but we want to invest in the things that allow people to make money because what we believe is that the the simians of the world are fast, you know, going away. Hey, I have a job and then occasionally I'll get a new job and I have a nine to five or simians case of five to five probably. And I get a paycheck. Am I supposed to be insulted here or am I supposed to feel good? It's a very confusing conversation. Guys, you need to know that Simeon's old job, they had one of the best in-house sushi restaurants in the world, right? Like that, (laughs) that is something that, that isn't, you know, Simeon, like your kids are probably not going to have that same kind of, Hey, here's a corporate job you know, stick around. And, and even if we were 10, 15 years older, you would probably be at one place for 30 years instead of like places for five, 10 years at a time. So, so what that- year did the matrix, it was, it's in 20 years from now, right? That's when we all disappear. That's what, That's right. Honestly, in some days, like, let's hope so. You know, um, with that, with that thought, Sarah, I'm wondering, you know, as work environments are changing as employees themselves the nature of a corporate employee is changing given you know the the transformation of technology uh, the impacts honestly on the from the pandemic on workforce culture and what will remain even after th- you know hopefully th- that's become a thing of the past if you will how are the people in your sphere of influence thinking about not just how that's going to change workforce culture, how that's going to change employees, but how that will ripple to the actual company's innovation thinking, output, and and ultimately into commerce itself. Yeah. In other words, it's all it's all a butterfly effect in a way. So are you are you thinking ahead down the pike and saying we think that this is going to be a domino effect that results in in a change of even the way business is being conducted in consumerism? Yeah, you know, I, I think that that's the big question, Mark, right? I think if you are a if you are a relatively tech-savvy company and you are sort of at scale, going remote is probably not going to have a huge impact on you, right? Because even your culture, which is now harder for people to pick up by being in the office, if you are a Google or a Facebook or a Box or a Slack or whatever... There are, are endless media stories and ask me anything and podcasts and whatever, where you can learn about the culture and you can learn, right? To some extent, we only join those companies because not only, but a big reason, right? If you have competing job offers from, from uh, Slack and Tesla, right? And they're both pretty good. Those are two incredibly different CEOs. And I will disclose that Stuart Butterfield is like one of my favorite humans. He's a great friend. Elon Musk, not a huge fan. But like you are joining those companies based almost as much on the culture and what you've seen externally of the culture as you are based on the comp package because they're probably pretty similar, right? And so so if you're a big company, the the risk, I think, if you're a big tech savvy company, the risk is low. If you're a big non-tech savvy company, I would argue that you have lots of other risks. If you're a new company, I truly don't think we have any idea. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that new companies still have to be in person to get some innovation out the door at the beginning. 
Now, talking about the the new company side of things, and as it relates to commerce or selling product, not necessarily tech product, but tangible product, where would you sit in that? You know, we mentioned that, you know, the luxury consumer isn't exactly your ideal target, but luxury has been booming. It's one of the, the kind of the small spaces in that industry that has been moving. What would you attach to? You know, we saw that affordable luxury was was really on the rise or that category is a new category, let's say, relatively. Um, but how would you approach like your 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 market if you were conceiving your product? In terms of like picking a market? Yeah, picking a market. Yeah. One thing I always caution people is, is against is sort of being an, an MBA in search of a problem, as I call it, meaning that that there are, are great ways to kind of bottom tops down your way into where you should build, right? Hey, did you know that there are every car has four tires and even electric cars aren't going to change the fact that people have tires. Tires wear out and um, most people don't have tire loyalty. So so I'm going to go start a direct-to-consumer tire brand. Great. Do you care about cars? No, I've never owned a car and I sort of hate driving. Okay, maybe maybe that's not the right way to, to pick a target, right? So, so the, the most important thing when you think about starting a company is like, the worst thing that can happen to your company is not that it fails. The worst thing that can happen is that it's wildly successful. You have to run it and you absolutely hate running it. And, and that happens to smart people more often than you would think. It's certainly a champagne problem, but it's a problem. So I would first start with what do you love? And then when it comes to the customer, I would just pick a segment you care about and really understand that segment. Don't make assumptions. Don't assume that, you know, I, I found a stat. I just bought a car. I found out a stat the other day that blew my mind. The average price of a used car is $20,000. The average price in America, the average price of a new car is $40,000. Meanwhile, the average American household, which is kind of 3.1 people, makes $40,000 a year, right? So, so this is crazy that the average cost of a used car is half of the household income for the year, and that's before tax income. And the reason for that, obviously, is, is loans and lending. Right. So if you said, I'm going to build a used car company for a lower income consumer, you might assume that they need a five or ten thousand dollar car. And maybe they need in an absolute sense for their finances that. But the reality of what they're buying is like double or triple that. And so so that's like a really just random top of mind example of I don't have a silver bullet answer for that because it depends on the company you're building. But I think the answer is pick something you love learn a ton about the consumer you think you want to serve, or maybe a bunch of different consumer segments, and then pick the one that resonates most with you that you think you'll be able to build a really big business in. Hey, Sarah. So to that point, what do you think of the growing to the, to the idea that, that the loans are what are allowing a lot of this to go forward? What do you think of the growing or the return to growth of the buy now, pay later options, which seems to be a very strong and yeah the affirms of the world the affirms of the world um you know i think i have i am of two minds on that um america runs on debt and the reality is until there is a real fundamental change to either wage growth or, or personally i think probably a stronger safety net in america you know the debt piece of it isn't going to go away and and you know one thing i always hate uh simian you should be shocked this hasn't come up before now because it's the only thing i care about my dating life. One thing I hate on dating apps is when guys talk about their credit score because the reality that wait, wait hold, hold, hold the fuck up. What? People, that that is, I have not Are been. Are you kidding me? I have not been on a dating app ever. Like I just missed that thing. Yeah. I missed that cusp by just uh, the, people because talk your credit about score, their credit scores. Yes, people say wow. credit score, blah blah blah. And the thing is, they're almost <laughs> invariably they're almost wow, invariably. 
typically like white dudes in their 30s. And what they don't understand is a high credit score just means that you make enough money to pay for life's necessities. Like a lot of gambling addicts probably have perfectly fine credit scores if they're rich. And a lot of like nuns probably have terrible credit scores if they're poor or if they're underbanked and never had the opportunity to build their credit. And it's like, dude, I can tell by looking at you, your race, gender, and general vibe, what your credit score is going to be, unless you have like a really big problem, you know? So, so like, but, but they think it's like this morality thing because like, we're on like such a weird tangent today, but this is what happens when you go on podcasts, but they think it's like a morality thing. Where, where a good credit score means you're a good person. No, it just means that your parents weren't excluded from housing because they were white. And it just means, wow. that, you know what I mean? Like it, the things that it means have very little to do with your personal responsibility. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you have bootstraps. So like, shout out to all the guys listening. Please take your credit score off. It <laughs> seems like so, so it's cringeworthy. The guys, it the sounds like a much more appropriate. Like I asked if you wanted a tequila or a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so it's crazy uh, um all right so let's let's i would love to shift uh, a bit and going back like going back yeah. towards consumer sentiment and where kind of the market is at play look we talked a little bit about uh financial kind of considerations in results of let's say covid and our particularly unique situation now but we'd be amiss to not talk about black lives matter the the social movements and and even the programs that have been started let's say by large box retailers like target to let's say commit 15% of their shelves to black and minority or bipoc brand owners uh, do you where do you think we are today in terms of figuring that out? Uh, I, I mean, well, let's not say that's loaded as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, we're nowhere. Uh, but let's say, like, where do you think we can be and in how long? Yeah. Do we think we're on, are we on the right path? Yeah. So apparently Target, according to my friend Aurora James, 15% pledge has not yet signed the 15% pledge. So Target is waiting because I spent a lot of money there. It is it is one of my friends. I do a lot of work with with the Reverend Jesse Jackson and his team. And and one of my friends from there, uh, Pastor Joseph Bryant, you know, whatever you ask him how things are going, he says, you know, we're farther than we were and we're not where we want to get. And and I think that that is the mantra for many people, but, you know, I think that's certainly a mantra of of the civil rights movement broadly. And and let's be very clear, economic inclusion is the last, you know, pillar of the civil rights movement. And so, yeah, I mean, we're we're farther than we were and we're not where we want to get. And and so my whole thing, my stump speech for this is two words, toilet paper. There is a company called Real, R-E-E-L. We'll put it in the show notes. They sell bamboo toilet paper, sustainable toilet paper. It's great, whatever, it's toilet paper, who cares, right? But because it's toilet paper, who cares? In a big way, that is a much more sustainable on every level shift for you to make as a consumer saying, oh, like how much of my money does go to Black-owned brands, right? Because you go out and you buy the face cream or you buy the, I'm obsessed with this company, Estelle Colored Glass. They make really great uh, you know, wine glasses. I don't know about your drinking habits, but I don't need to buy new wine glasses every week, right? But like toilet paper, I don't, I don't want to go too long without it, right? Uh, flashback to COVID season one. So, so I think a lot of where the long-term gains here are, are thinking about it in every place of your life, right? It, in, and, and letting it permeate into kind of everything, not just, oh, I'll buy, you know, baby gifts from whatever, Rooted, which is a super cute baby company that's Black-owned. Because you don't buy that. Well, I'm in my mid-30s, so I, buy, I have to buy a baby gift every 24 hours as stipulated by law because my friends won't stop getting pregnant. But like, 
for most of us, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, last COVID. Um, but but for most of us, that's not as something we do every day. We're always buying toilet paper. So go to Real, like set up a subscription. They also do paper towels. Set it and forget it. When you get back to the office, get your office to do it. You know, get like send send boxes to your friends with a subscription that says 2020 has been super shitty, right? Like whatever, because that is, I think, how more sustainable change comes, right? White people have not become super rich in America because we are buying like one-off things from them. It's because you can't try to live your life without spending money at a white owned establishment. Not like, like as a social protest, just as an experiment or as a social protest, you do you, but it's functionally impossible. Right. And that's what we mean by systemic disenfranchisement is that the system does it for you. You don't have to do anything. It just is right every time I'm on an es- or a people mover or an escalator in an in an airport in particular right and and you know Schindler like Schindler's List they still make their people movers right and every time there's like one specific uh, people mover I'm thinking of that I'm on a lot in San Francisco well was when people traveled and and you see that and every time I have this moment of thinking like it's everybody's job. You know, it's literally everybody's job to go do these things. And, and you know, Schindler did it. They're still in business. They seem to be doing very well for the amount of people they're moving. So, you know, think about how to systemically support businesses that are going to, one, be an ally, and two, who are these people who've historically been systemically disenfranchised and shut out of businesses. And it's not just buying a baby book from, you know, buy baby black baby books at Instagram.com. So given that I'm an analyst, if I didn't ask mm-hmm. at least one question that seems laced with cynicism or at least tainted yeah. by realism, I'd be a failure to my kind. So mm-hmm. in in response, and by the way, I'm not really good with history, but I think Schindler um, turned around and helped. So let's, we'll, we'll give, we'll give the man his props. You haven't seen the movie? Assuming that I'm, that I'm right. Um, I've seen the movie and I've seen Seinfeld too. Um, anyway, this, this is not, not, not a lot of jokes. I should be going down. But, right. <laughs> um, but so, okay, morality or side on the question I'm about mm-hmm. to ask, do you believe in consumer activism? Because this is somewhat timely. Nike just recently reported the largest consumer seller of products, mm-hmm. one of the best marketers, people buy Nike because they believe they make them better at what they do. So no matter which side of the, if, if you burn your Nike sneakers one month, you probably buy them again when you need to get on the court. And I just, I think the problem is whether you agree with their message or not, and this speaks for all of big, large brands, you're being marketed to, you're being pitched to, and ultimately we can hear about the wins from the individuals and the independents, but they're just not large enough in the scheme of consumer spending. And I wonder if that's just because at the heart of it, people don't actually buy or vote with their wallets as much as they want everyone to believe? I think it comes and goes. Um, but the the thing to keep in mind is that that brands get afraid like everybody else, right? And, and so, you know, I, I think about this a lot in the sustainability thing. There's a lot of pressure, right? Why aren't you personally composting? If you let that piece of lettuce go in your trash, you personally are responsible for the mega death that is impending, right? But the reality is that um, it's, it's corporate's job, right? It's corporate's job to make uh, compostable materials. It's corporate's job to not put, you know, chemicals that, 
that deplete the ozone layer into our into our products. And the reason they don't is because the government doesn't enforce it because and 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 then obviously that goes back to who we elect and blah blah blah. And I primarily blame Mitch McConnell. But the reality is that you, you could you could you could blame him more than partially. Yeah, exactly. If you'd like. I, I blame him for everything always. That is my stand. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, it all goes back to Mitch McConnell. No, but but it's one of those things, right, where, where um, but at the same time, individual activism. So I, I used to be on a board at, at a university, and we talked about, we would talk about um, with other universities, one of the biggest, and not like in a systemic way, this would just come up casually in conversation, and I was asking them, because I hadn't been on the board very long, like, you know, do students groups get involved with, with your allocating of, of capital and how you do things? The only time where that really happens is Greenpeace, right? Remember in like the early 2000s and 90s when like the Greenpeace student groups had a ton of pull? So many universities divested of fossil fuels because they just didn't want to deal with it. They the backlash. Didn't want, yeah. and, and like, the, what are the students going to do? You're going to drop out of Harvard? Nobody drops out of Harvard unless you have, unless you're, you know, unless you're going on to become the next Mark Zuckerberg, right? People don't drop out of Harvard at scale, people don't drop out of any school at scale because they're angry about allocation into fossil fuels or whatever. But the perception of that, that life might get a little bit uncomfortable, was so scary for these brands, right? That they were willing to do what I think we on this call would broadly consider the right thing because they just didn't want to deal with it. And one of the biggest things I've learned in a very different arena, I was very involved in the Me Too movements of a few years back, is that that, you know, most things stay as they are because of sort of just this perpetual motion machine, right? And things stay the way they are because things stay the way they are. But it doesn't take much, right, to, to interrupt that. And all you have to do is sort of nudge it a little bit with, with think of it as like a simple machine, right? It's a fulcrum with, with just a little bit of pressure. You can, you can really move things, Brands get very scared when consumers zero in on them, partially because then people like Simeon notice it and start talking about it and writing about it. And then it hits them the only place where a true American cares in their wallet, right? We're the worst. No, but but that's good. That's what you're... You should be doing that, right? And, and you know, when I, I was really into... I was really into hedge funds. I was really into hedge funds a few years ago. And I spent a lot of time looking at, at the activist, you know, shareholder world. You get the letter and it's basically like, you know, we know that your wife cheated on you five years ago and we know that you're a bad dad and we know that your stock price is going to tumble. And you're like, okay, Dan Loeb, take my money, right? And and Dan Loeb, do not come after me. But I think that there's something there because it worked and it, they didn't have to work very hard to make it work that... that <laughs> makes me wonder why can't you do that around these issues right why can't you go why can't you be an activist and shareholder right like a, a literal activist um who comes in and, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson did this very successfully at tech companies years ago where he bought some stock went to the annual meeting and said hey I want to know about your diversity numbers. For years tech companies had said those are proprietary information we can't release them because they're trade secrets. Jesse Jackson comes in and says, hey, I really like this uh, company. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Now we know the diversity mm -hmm. stats. They're terrible and they don't get better, but now we know. Yeah, I, I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think we also just had an example of a moment that uh, Sarah will stand by even in the editing process. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. You mean the uh, last 45 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> 
right, well, this... Did, I, I'm not sure if we touch on retail except for uh, Target never uh, went through that commitment of 15% <laughs> shelf space. Now we have Westfield's digital stuff. It's amazing. But, but this is retail right now. Like Retail does not live in a silo. You can't just be somebody, can't. you know, whatever cheese samples at Costco without understanding, you know, how mm. to split an atom. Like everything's connected here, people. I haven't been to Costco in a very long time, but fuck those well, samples. how do you get your cheese? Their sample game. Yes. <laughs> yeah. oh, it seems like now, it, now it's Wegmans Delivery, man. They opened up at the oh, Navy Yard not too far look, from me. Oh, nice. I, nice. I am, I've been there a couple times, Pubbin, but I live a little too far away from that to make easy access. And Ooh, I'm, I, a, a Rochester me. boy. I'm a from, Rochester it boy. It hurts me growing up with Wegmans and not have easy access to one so close. It hurts me. Who's dying to make these trips right now? You guys, if I make it three blocks from my house, that's a win. See, yeah. I mean, I need a helicopter is what I really need. Just <laughs> talk, you talk to Sarah. I, I think Blaine's going, going public. I think Blaine's going public. There you go. Well, yeah. I, yeah, maybe I'm going to coax my uh, my wife to move to a mid-sized American city so I can save some money and get a Blade membership. You there you go. You have most, the richest person in Cincinnati. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we all have goals. Uh <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's going to be time for some personal questions as we look at, uh, I feel we have looked at Sarah as a human being, but we're going to look at a a different level of, of being human with a round of off the grid questions right after this. Every business has at least one big pivotal moment. The moment when you say, okay, we're at this turning point, so then what? I'm Lahari Neil Peretti, founder of LN Accounting Advisor. I hope you'll join me each week on my podcast, Then What? As we talk with successful business leaders who push past their business's biggest then what moments and succeed in an even bigger way because of effective leadership and solid business practices. It's inspiring and deeply useful information for any entrepreneur. Subscribe to Then What on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find the best podcasts. Time for questions off the grid with fashion is your business. Okay, Sarah, this is uh, off the grid questions where we ask questions, frankly, a little off the grid. We get a little more personal with the questions. There's three hosts here. We all have questions to ask. We, we may not even know what they're going to be, but we have to figure out what order we ask them. We solve that with a spin of our, our highly celebrated wheel of grid destiny. Wherever it lands, we'll ask that question. So I'm going to spin that wheel with a good spin round and round she goes and the first question is from simeon yes simeon yes Yes. first time all right i got a, I got a choice of three you can pick whichever one you want first what is your credit score <laughs> two, two what are the name of the tires on the brand new car you just bought or three in a world of streaming stay at home, what are you watching? 
I will tell you. I'm really hoping you don't pick three, by the way. No, my credit score is so fascinating because, uh, you know, moving over the years, I have like a bunch of screenshots of credit scores at different points to send the landlords. My credit (laughs) score is only correlated with my income. That's it. That's it. So right now my credit score is great. And, you know, a few years back when, when I was finding out firsthand how deeply complicated it was to be a black woman in the tech industry, it was terrible. And so, you know, it, it, it is unfortunate that a, t- a credit score really is just a reflection of, of how well the system is working for you. And what are you watching? <laughs> so what are you streaming these I'm days? Like, I'm, I'm not, the lighten mood a little. Um, stream. What am I watching right now? Oh my god! I'm Why a- do you think Sarah has time to watch anything? Oh god, I just this is actually the best answer because I, I almost guarantee you wouldn't suspect it. I am obsessed with holiday romance movies. Like all the like, you know, it's so it's so literal. It's embarrassing. Like overworked tech ex- overwork executive woman who's too busy for love learns the real meaning of Christmas. Like that Ju- is me. 24-7 until the new year. Starring Judith Light. Starring Judith Light. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Although I think for me, the mom would be played more by like an Angela Bassett type. Um, but yes. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Of course. That's nice. Uh, that was, that was, that was great. We got two. I, now I, I really just kind of want to know the tire, the tire brand just to round out the trifecta there. This is like a whole other problem. Don't worry, Simeon. We will be talking offline about my plans to innovate in in the uh, used car. The tire space? I already have the domain, by the way. Cars. Oh, this is my tire company name. These tires save lives. I think it's super evocative. Um, (laughs) I love that. Donate a dollar to somebody. You're like, oh, no, no, no. They're still Firestone. They'll still kill you. But look, these tires save lives. Um, But but there's actually a huge problem with that in used cars because a lot of times like they don't actually tell you that. So I spent all this money. I bought this car. I got an all wheel drive. I really want all season tires. So, so I can go up to Tahoe because I'm bougie as you know, F. But the problem is that nobody knows what the tires are. And I basically just have to go look myself and Google it because right now the the big incumbent, um, everything from dealers to the Carvanas of the world, nobody really surfaces that information to the consumer, even though it's something that they know. They just don't surface it and consumers don't think to ask and they're very, they can be very expensive uh, kind of oversight. So don't you worry, Simeon. I have a whole plan to overhaul the auto industry next. Wow. Well, you know, this is you versus Elon Musk, I guess. So we'll we'll have you back in six six months. (laughs) I'll win every time. I know. Okay. So another spin of the wheel. And the next question comes to Pumman. So as you, you know, traveled, of course, uh, kind of far, and I don't mean in literal senses, but you seem to be uh, pretty far from, let's say, your, uh, your childhood neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering what pieces of, of home you keep with you in your everyday and what, like, what, what, what aspects do you kind of keep near and dear to heart? I really like cheese balls. Fuck yeah. You know, are you, are you, are you talking like the planners? Like, yeah, what, yeah, what, planners, what, like what, the kind what, that come with like the covered in nuts, like not, not like, mm. I don't need an artisanal. I can get artisanal cheese. Balls. No, I'm not even talking about artisanal. I was talking about like the yeah. Costco, the big exactly. boy ones yeah. that have like the Uts or whatever. Yeah, like, but then yeah. you really have to. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That you really have to like cut into. It's like a softball covered in nuts. Mm-hmm. And it's like that weird yellow color. It's basically yeah, like a bunch of easy cheese, like cheese whiz, like smushed into a ball. 
and then covered in 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 dust. pecan dust, I think, or like almond <laughs> yeah. dust. It's like an indiscriminate, indeterminate nut. And then like you put it on wrists and it breaks. So the hungry now. A so high hungry. allergenic I dust. Know, I know. This is not <laughs> hypoallergenic GMO dust. This is GMOs only. Um, yeah. So so no, but I, I look. I think that. There is the idea that as you move through life, you have to shed all vestiges of your former self is is not great. I watched The Talented Mr. Ripley sometime during COVID season one and and fantastic movie worth a rewatch. Great film. But there's this piece of it where like a lot of it, besides like his sort of like murder and everything else, there's this obsession with like who I am and where I came from isn't good enough. I have to remake myself, even though people kind of liked him for who he really was, almost more so than they liked him for who he was pretending to be, because who he really was genuinely was more likable. And and I have this conversation a lot with friends about that, right? The fact that that my goal isn't to get people to say, oh my gosh, Sarah must be from some fancy family or she must have been born rich. Like I'm very comfortable with the fact that my first two jobs were on a farm. I was picking strawberries and I was, I was hoeing bean fields. And now I'm an investor in a robotic company that hoes bean fields for you. So I have automated myself out of a job 23 years later for my 11 year old self. But like, I'm, I'm proud of that because that taught me work ethic and it gives me, you know, a a, a lot, it gives me a perspective. And even if I didn't feel either of those things, it's still just reality. And I think when you start to deny reality, like you're in trouble. So, you know, I, I think that I can carry, I can take cheese, cheese balls on my friend's private jets, you know, they might not eat them, but I will. Love it. I love that so much. Uh, this is why we do this segment. All right. One final spin of the wheel. And surprisingly, it has come to me. So I, I love that you indicated earlier that you you had kind of gotten away from the theater thing uh, when we talked about improv earlier. So my question is squarely in, in the middle of that. And that is, Sarah, if you were hypothetically to star in a big blockbuster film, just in in hypothetical world, what kind of film would you want it to be? What kind of character would you want to play if you could do anything? And who must be your co-star? I think it's deeply obvious that the co-star would be Rihanna. It would be a buddy film and it would be sort of Mission Impossible but with like a love story element where I may or may not end up like the new princess of Monaco. She's clearly never thought of this. I, I was like, I love how easily this came to you, Sarah. I love that so much. You, just have, you have to know who you are. And if you know who you are, no, I, I've never literally never thought of that before, but if you know who you are broadly, yeah. then any specific question you can, you can wayfind through. Cause you're like, who am I? Like, what is, what is the, what is the most fantastical interpretation of all of this? And it's easy. I am saving the world and then become queen of it. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Thank you very much. Uh, All right. So Sarah, uh, I love to offer you a chance to have a a final thought. You could simply reflect back on this discussion, but you know, if you were given the big microphone for a second and you just got to say anything that you need to say to the, the world out there to, to the, the decision-making listeners that listen to the show, what, what piece of, wisdom do you want to leave behind? Yeah. The piece of wisdom I'll leave behind is 
great because it comes from really a place of, of, of business acumen, which is, you know, diversity uh, drives better returns. And diversity doesn't mean that you're sitting in a room with people who only look like you. Even if I were doing that and it was all Black women, um, that would, would have less great returns than, you know, a room like the one we're in right now, maybe with a few more women in it, but diversity drives better returns. And and so when you're thinking about your 2021, you know, anniversary in 2020 from a retail perspective is probably going to be a little chaotic. But when you think about, you know, anniversary in 2019 and you say, how do we get those numbers up? If your team isn't diverse, I have the world's easiest growth hack for you. Hire diverse people and, you know, you'll start to see better returns. Wow. Thank you. And how can people connect with you, follow you, or connect and follow with something that you care about? Oh my God, would they want to do that? Um, I am very active on Twitter and Instagram. I'm just at Sarah Kunst at both of them. Um, and anybody, if you're a startup founder, anybody can go to cleocap.com and and pitch us there. Uh, we have a wide open front door. And while we don't look at a ton of retail and fashion stuff, you know, we we look at a ton of stuff and, and we'll look at every pitch deck and get you an answer. What's, what's your investment thesis? So the investment area, the areas I invest in primarily are, are uh, future of income, which I mentioned. So, you know, kind of gig economy stuff primarily. So the one thing we're really interested in on the fashion side with that is sort of next gen Poshmarks and real reels. Um, I think that there's a huge market there. And then uh, complicated consumer is the other main area we focus on complicated consumer. The insight being that most consumer dollars chase kind of nap dresses and lipsticks and suitcases and other things I love dearly. That's not what keeps consumers up at night. What keeps consumers up at night is, you know, student loan debt, estate planning, divorce, uh, all these really big, hairy things that broadly fall into kind of uh, legal tech, insurance tech, consumer-facing health and real estate tech, and fintech. And so, you know, we want to invest in those things um, because we think that if we can free up your time and money from worrying about those things, you'll have more money to spend on things that Instagram is pushing you in its ads. Are you pre-value? rounds or like where, uh, you, where, uh, where do you step in? Um, we're, we're pre-seed. We love really, really, really early stuff. Um, I love mm. talking to companies before their companies. I love talking to smart people with sector expertise when they are just starting to think about what they're going to do. Um, and, and we love, you know, I, I call myself kind of a preschool teacher. Um, we, we work with a couple of companies at a time and they need a ton of our attention and love. And then we, we graduate them out and they're potty trained and they can, they can go to grade school. Thank you very much, Sarah Kunst, uh, entrepreneur, investor, and managing director at Clio Capital. I, I think uh, I speak for Simeon and Pubbin when I say a huge thank you for your incredible insights, everything you shared, and for joining us on Fashion Is Your Business. Congratulations on everything you have accomplished so far. It's so mesmerizingly impressive, and uh, I can't wait to watch your your motion picture debut thank with you. Rihanna. <laughs> thank so. you. All right. Uh, and happy holidays. That is it for this episode of fashion is your business. Uh, what a great one too. And uh, a huge thank you to Simeon Siegel for uh, blessing us again with your presence. Thank you for joining us, sir. Always a pleasure. And your, your humor as well. That's it, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it for pub and ball. Shake it easy. I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day. Bye-bye. This has been Fashion Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at fashionisyourbusiness.com 
and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening.